0: Hi, and welcome to the October Diaries, another episode in our monthly series where I will talk with you about the movies I watched in the previous month. Apologies for the lateness of this video. I was traveling at the end of October into the start of November, and I've been quite busy since I've got back. So now is the first time I've really had a chance and the energy to record another episode um but thank you for your patience the november diaries will be out by the end of the month on schedule and thank you everyone who listened to the first episode of our scooby-doo series uh myself and dean will hopefully be getting together soon to record the next episode we've just both been very busy with work And so, let's crack on. Remember, this time I'm only going to be discussing movies, not TV shows. So, what did I watch in the month of October 2022? Well, I set myself a challenge to watch as many of the classic main Universal Monster movies as possible. Not none of the uh not not the sequels cuz there's there'd be so many sequels so many you know Dracula meets the mummy or the mummy meets the invisible man those i was i decided no i don't i don't have the time to watch everything maybe someday i will find some way of watching all of them but it is not it's not as easy and i have the main the big main ones on blu-ray so that was that was an easier thing for me to sort out in october uh so i'm just going to give my thoughts on them uh first off i think the 1931 films dracula and frankenstein are both absolute seminal horror classics um if there was a 10 commandments of horror movies i think both of them would make the list or like they'd be a joint they'd be a joint entry dracula set the standard for what vampire movies should be i mean obviously it borrows a lot from nosferatu but in terms of like what western civil western hollywood vampire movies have become dracula from 1931 is just such a seminal piece in that blueprint and obviously bella lugosi's performance is iconic and so is Boris Karloff's uh performance as Frankenstein uh the 1931 Frankenstein is just a phenomenal movie. Uh uh James Whale did, did an astonishing job and that's not even his best Frankenstein movie. Um so I just think both of them are absolute must-sees if you love uh film history if you love horror if you love monster movies or if you just or just watch it in general like these are such important movies that still hold up to this day uh i'm not as hot on 1932's the mummy um maybe it's just a case of you know i prefer what came later I, maybe I just prefer the Brendan Fraser versions. Maybe I just prefer The Mummy as more of an adventure story... As opposed to this, which is more of a horror movie. Like, like The Mummy... Like, 1932's The Mummy is just uh, the Bela Lugosi Dracula movie... But with Boris Karloff playing a mummy. And he's fantastic. He's the best thing in the movie. But if you take him out, there's really not much else going on with that movie. Um... Maybe watch it if you'd like, but you know I can't like absolutely recommend it the way I can recommend most of the other Universal Monster movies. Uh the Invisible Man, which was also directed by James Whale. This is campy as balls, and I really like it. It is the it is fun campy. It is, find them f- the f- one of the first times you can see. Camp and horror working together in tandem to make something very entertaining. And it's got Claude Rains in it. And what could be bad with Claude Rains in it? The man is just fantastic. Uh, I watched Bride of Frankenstein, which is one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Scratch that, I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. If you're looking for a list of perfect films, like straight up, not a single thing is wrong with them, Not a, there's, there's no weak point, there's no Achilles heel, everything is just on the point mark perfect. Bride Frankenstein. It is... A masterpiece. It is James Whale's masterpiece, and it is a movie that everyone should see in their lifetime. It's fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh I also uh I watched The Wolfman from the 1940s. It's the blueprint for all werewolf movies that came after, and for good reason. It's a good watch. It is a very. it's a fun movie. It's a creepy movie. It has the best fog I have ever seen in a movie. And if it wasn't for the fact that an American werewolf in London exists, it would probably be still to this day the best werewolf movie ever made. Plus it's got a little bit of Bella Lugosi in it. You can never go wrong with a little bit of Bella Lugosi. And then I finished off this run of Universal Monster movies with Creature from the Black Lagoon. Which is a very interesting one in the canon of the Universal Monsters because it came in the early 50s and it really feels like this transition point at the very end of the series when the Universal Monsters they're all wrapping up you know all the sequels and spin-offs and interconnected movies they've all kind of come and gone And The Creature from the Black Lagoon is kind of the final, the last hurrah. But The Creature from the Black Lagoon also feels like it's moving into the cheap, campy B-movie sci-fi horror of the 1950s. So it does feel like it's a meeting of two generations, two eras of old school Hollywood horror. And I think it works as both. Which is interesting. It's not my favourite of the series. But I still like it more than I like The Mummy. Um, so I would say, I'd say watch it. It's a good time. It's nowhere near the level of Dracula or Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, it's not even as good as The Mummy. Uh, not not The Mummy. Uh, the Wolfman. But um, it's still a good time. Um and then what cur- what other current movies have I seen this did I see in October? I saw The Banshees of Inishirin and it is one of my favourite films of the year. Um it's a film that I desperately need to go back and see again because I know I'm going to get even more out of it on a second watch. It is somehow one of the most devastating films of the year, and also maybe the straight up funniest film of the year. Although I think some of your enjoyment of the comedy in the movie will be if you're Irish or not. If you're Irish and your sense of humour is Irish, then this will probably be the funniest movie of the year. If not, maybe you won't get all the jokes, but you, you'll you still get a lot of the jokes, but some of the humour is just... It's very rooted in Irishness. You know, I don't know if someone from America or even the UK really would kind of get the same laugh as laugh out of, you know, a a good two to three minute sequence of dialogue where the entire joke is just people repeating, are you rowing? Um, I don't know if people from outside of Ireland will get as much of a kick out of that as Irish people will. But I would still 100% recommend this movie. Colin Farrell gives probably the best performance of his career. Brendan Gleeson is fantastic as always. Barry Keoghan plays yet another creepy weirdo in his growing portfolio of big screen creepy weirdos. Um, and I, I just love this movie, I need to see it again, because it's, like, one of those movies, you will find something new to love about it every time you see it, so I need to see it again, but again, but as I said, it is one of my favourite movies of the year, in any year, in any other year that doesn't, that didn't have the release of Everything Everywhere all at once, this would probably be my number one, but, like, it is, it's probably, it's definitely gonna be top five, probably even top three um i love it i need to see it again uh what else did i see this much uh we um don't worry darling definitely not going to be on my list of favorite movies of the year um this movie wasn't the complete and utter dumpster fire that i think some people were making it out to be To an extent, I think some people were a little bit harsh on it because of all of the drama surrounding it in the pre-release, all the on-set drama, the whole does Florence Pugh and Olivia Wilde dislike each other thing, the Harry Styles stuff, whatever. And I think that kind of formed a black cloud around the movie that that it wasn't able to clear no matter what it did. Obviously it didn't do enough because it's not a great movie. It's it's like a two and a half stars out of five at best. Um and it just kinda of feels like, you know, someone had an idea for a Black Mirror episode, wrote down a first draft of the script, took it to Charlie Brooker, who does black mirror and Charlie Brooker said no thanks you need to flesh this out a good bit more but then someone found that first draft of the script for the episode and turned it into a feature-length movie without any fleshing out whatsoever um and it kind of shows I mean the best thing in the entire movie is Florence Pugh giving a performance that is very very admirable if you, if if it's legit that there was such onset yo know, nonsense going on, it is a testament to her as an actress that she was able to give off this good of a performance even under those conditions, where even like you wouldn't, even where you not even you wouldn't even blame the someone for like phoning it in if there was actual onset fuckery going on, um. But fair props for if the rumors are true, she carried this film entirely. Harry Styles is okay, you know he still has he still has some growing to do as an actor, but he's not terrible um if you use him the right way you'll get you'll get a decent return if you try and push him for too much yeah, it doesn't work out there's a scene in the car there's a scene in this movie where he's in a car, and it just it's laughable. Um, but yeah, don't worry darling, it wasn't great, but it's not the dumpster fire that everyone's making it out to be. Um, I watched Marcel the Shell with shoes on while I was on an airplane, and it is mind-blowingly cute, it's really adorable, but once you look past how cute it is, you can't, you also realise, oh wow, this is quite deep on levels you didn't expect. Um, I would recommend It's a really cute movie. It's a movie you can show your kids, but I think it might go a little bit over their head. Um, It's one of those movies where visually it looks like it's for kids, but story-wise it's probably more for adults even. Um, I watched Moulin Rouge, which was a first time watching for me. Um, Sometimes Baz Luhrmann's style doesn't fit. Basil style didn't fit The Great Gatsby. I don't think it fit Romeo and Juliet, but it was just but the nineties Romeo and Juliet with DiCaprio was just so weird, and um, DiCaprio and Claire Danes just about kind of made it not a mess. Like it's a like Romeo and Juliet is a mess, but it's an it's a fascinating mess. More so than any other Baz Luhrmann film. But with Moulin Rouge, it's a case of his style worked. It fit what this was meant to be. It's so extra. But I can't imagine this movie working if it wasn't so extra. Like, a low-key version of this movie would not work. It would be lifeless. It would be depressing. um, and And it just wouldn't be true but what this story is. It is a story of young love told by a bright-eyed, naive young bohemian. You know, like it it works. It is Baslerman style working, and I enjoyed it. Some bits were cringe, but overall it wasn't bad. It was alright. It was decent. Um uh, I watched the Redeem team, which is a Netflix documentary about the two thousand and eight olympic men 's u s basketball team um and their kind of their quest to redeem themselves after a bad showing at the two thousand and four olympics um it 's made by the same people who made the last dance, which if you remember was a michael jordan uh centric Mini documentary series that came out during the COVID lockdowns in 2020 and is probably the best sports documentary series ever made. Um, that The Last Dance blew my mind in 2020. It was one of the pillars of my first lockdown in 2020 like that helped get me through that was one of the shows that helped get me through every week um and the redeem team it's always going to be in the shadow of the last dance because it does feel to an extent like the logical sequel and it does feel like a spiritual successor to what the last dance was because The thing with The Last Dance was it felt more than just a basketball thing. It felt like it was the story of Michael Jordan, but it was also the story of America in the 90s to a wider degree. And now here comes this series about tunics in a little bit, but not as much uh, America in the 2000s post 9-11 uh the after the iraq war like it like that's mentioned every now and again is like, like oh this, this is a reason why so-and-so didn't want to compete at the olympics in 2004 or some other excuse like that um so like yes and but it's just not as interesting a story like it's an intriguing story for a for like an error and 40 minute documentary um but it does kind of have some identity problems because about halfway, and just around the halfway mark, it kind of turns into being more about Kobe Bryant, um, and I'm just kind of like, well, are you trying to tell the story of this team, or are you trying to tell the story of Kobe Bryant? Because it's kind, of, you're kind of trying to do two things at the same time, and I don't think it's fully working at doing both. So either just focus on one. Or just do the other, um. But it kind of, it keep it gets kind of back on track, and you know it's a nice documentary. It's nothing special, but you know if you watch the Last Dance and you're like, oh, I, I wanna watch kind of something more that's like that, something that's like that, then the Redeem Team is right up your alley. Um. I watched I love you, man. Which I quite enjoyed. It's interesting because I looked up afterwards, kind of what how this movie was received at the time, and it's weird. It had at the time it had this kind of label as a wannabe Judd Apatow movie. But if you look at I Love You Man, compared to the Judd Apatow movies at that time, you know, knocked up, forty year old virgin, funny people it would have been about a year after what was it actually I think it was the same year but like essentially I Love You Man has aged way better than George Apatow's movies from that time and it feels more in keeping with what kind of mainstream studio comedies the ones that we get these days probably dropped on Netflix or whatever it feels more like what those are today than any of the Judd Apatow movies do. I Love You Man feels like a natural forefather to the style of Hollywood comedies that we get these days. Which are more kind of vibes over conflict comedies. You know like a lot of this movie is just vibing with Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel. And it really does feel like that set the tone now because a lot you get a lot more movies these days that are kind of prioritised the vibes and the characters interacting over story and even the comedy to an extent. But the comedy comes from the vibes as opposed to like actual story or narrative or conflict. Uh, so I feel like I Love You Man was more influential long-term than the Judd Apatow movies and uh, like I said it it has aged better than most of the Judd Apatow movies of the 2000s um also it's one of those movies where you watch and you're just like holy shit who isn't in this movie like this movie is a Jason Bateman away from just being a calling card for the next 10 years of Hollywood comedy stars so many names in this movie pop will pop up again, you know, later on. You've got a young Andy Sandberg in here. You have I can't remember his name, but he plays Charles on Brooklyn 9. You have so many future big names in comedy in this movie and it's just it's it's, it's just wow. I also rewatched Top Gun Maverick while on an airplane is kind of ironic um and it's even better on a second watch i'll i'll be honest with you i mean you know it is just old school simple blockbuster cinema spectacle done right you know it's a it has a it's a simple story it's nothing fancy it but it doesn't try to be anything fancy in a way that it's profound, but it, it sneaks up on you, you know it lets itself be a little cheesy. It lets itself be a little oh, look, you remember this thing from the last film. It's like this, but it's a bit different like it like it's not ticking off yo. Know, a list of nostalgia things yes some of the nostalgia is very blatant like the opening is literally a recreation of the original opening it does have a shirtless beach game this time it's a game of football not volleyball um you get one or two original cast members coming back um and yes the love subplot with Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly is ridiculous and cheesy but it's nice cheesy it's summer blockbuster you know you go you enjoy you eat a lot of popcorn when you see it you know old old school they don't make blockbusters like this anymore you know not, not everyone is quipping all of the time you know it has moments of sincerity that feel sincere the effects are fantastic. Tom Cruise just knows this character like the back of his hand. And he's very subtle about it. Um, I, I just think it's great. You know, it's, it might be the best pure blockbuster of the year. It might be the pure, best pure blockbuster of the decade so far, as far as I'm concerned. Um, And I will rewatch it again many times. This is just a boatload of fun. Or in this case, a military jet full of fun um i watched the blues brothers on that same flight and my god this movie is just fantastic i hadn't seen this movie in a couple years um i only watched it the first time a few years ago despite the fact that i've known about this movie since i was a kid mainly through that one drake and josh episode but this is a this is the kind of magic lightning in a bottle moment movie that can only happen made at the one perfect time in history with the most perfect pieces um John Landis, who I have strong feelings about, but I have to admit he was he was a good director, I don't think he was a good man but he was a very good director um you've got John Belushi God Rest His Soul Dan Aykroyd the perfect two leading men for this movie such a perfect dynamic this movie is so effortlessly cool without even trying and it's funny without even giving shit about like whether it's whether it wants the audience to find it funny It's just it has a confidence to it and it has a sleek has a slickness and it just has such a charm to it. This movie shouldn't work. There is no way this movie should work, but it is darn near perfect in its execution, in its comedy, in its presentation. Its story is so fun. It's such an easy rewatch you know it is. It is the definition of they don't make them like like they used to because you couldn't make this now. You couldn't. They couldn't even make it again when they did the sequel years later in like, was it like nineteen ninety nine or two thousand? Um. So they couldn't make it when they made the sequel. They couldn't make it today because it just wouldn't work today. I their, their culture is not where this movie needs us to be for another blues brothers to ever happen and, there sh- and it shouldn't happen again if sh- we shouldn't have even gotten a sequel this was just a perfect magical one-time thing and it's just tremendous and it makes car chases and car smashing into a goddamn art form it might be the best car movie ever made personally speaking I also watched Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe biopic directed by Andrew Dominic. And this is a very pretty movie visually. It looks great. The cinematography is gorgeous at times. But my god, on the inside, this movie is ugly. It's exploitative and it's a nasty experience that has nothing really of any note or value to say about who marilyn monroe was or what she went through besides pointing at all of her sexual abuse and all of her mistreatment throughout her entire life and just being like oh look at her god love her wasn't she such a victim despite the fact that there was a lot more to marilyn monroe than just the tragic things that she went through and even then it And it never bothers to show her as anything other than a sexualized victim or an object, which you know i'd un like I'd understand if that's what you're wanting to do, but like it it doesn't even do that well, like try and say something about how it's wrong, it doesn't even say that it just shows it is just it's it's exploitative and there's just been so many Mal Monroe biopics and movies now that like we don't need another you know we don't need to know this we don't need to be told again how tragic her life was when this movie even takes some of the nice parts of her life and turns them sadder than they probably they were you know And I don't want to be someone who just said who want who's in that camp of, oh, men shouldn't make these kinds of movies anymore. But it's 2022. And I feel like this movie would have been so much better. if It had been made by a woman or maybe even just someone who gave a damn about Marilyn Monroe, because Andrew Dominic surely doesn't. I've seen I've seen his movie about her. You cannot tell me he actually cares about her or her story. Because she just feels like an object. She just feels like an object for the camera to oogle. And you can tell me, oh, it's, it's appropriate because this and that. She was a real person who had a very tragic life. And this movie just feels exploitative and shallow. Like I said... If you are actually saying something in doing this, that would be different. But it isn't saying anything. It's just, it's hollow. It's shallow. It's meaningless. It's pretty, but it's meaningless. And it's it's such a shame because Anna Diarmas is really good in this movie, and there's inklings of possibly interesting things, but the director doesn't seem to care about that. He just cares about showing sexualizing her and showing her as this powerless victim, when in reality she was more than that. And, you know, if you had done a movie where you create this different character altogether, but she's based on Marilyn Monroe, and then you do all these things to her, and we're just like, oh, it's because she's, she's meant to be like a proxy for Marilyn Monroe. Maybe that'd be a little bit better, but you're not even like bother to do that you're just lazy and you just call her marilyn marilyn monroe and it's it, it's it's such a disappointing movie because this could have been great but maybe it was always meant to be this way i watched bedazzled which is a comedy from the year 2000 directed by Howard ramus starring brendan Fraser and liz hurley and this is This is kind of an underrated gem in terms of comedies that are both simultaneously bad, but simultaneously really good and really entertaining. Like, it's such a silly premise. Like, you know, Liz Hurley plays the devil and she's sexy. And Brendan Fraser plays this computer nerd who wants to impress a girl So the devil kind of grants him a a certain number of wishes. And it's basically just an opportunity for Brendan Fraser to show off his comedic range as an actor. And my God, he knocks it out of the park. This is genuinely one of the greatest comedic performances I have ever seen from an actor. Whether they are primarily a comedic actor or a serious actor who's turned to comedy or vice versa... Just straight up, this is one of the best comedic performances I've ever seen. It's one of the closest, I would say, we've gotten to a modern-day Peter Sellers style of playing multiple characters, and they're all really funny. He plays such wild and out-there versions of himself. He plays like this overly sensitive type. He plays the intellect this funny intellectual he plays this tall white monstrosity of a basketball player and it's just it's fantastic yes as a story it's not it's not much and it's silly and it's dumb and again it's the year 2000 so the cgi in points has really not aged well but if you're a f- fan of brendan fraser i would 100% recommend it if you just want something silly Something silly that's easy to watch and you'll get a laugh out of it. I really do recommend Bedazzle because it is an underrated film that fell through the cracks and I think that's a crime. I watched the Amazon documentary they released in accordance with uh, them getting all of the Bond films onto Amazon Prime. Uh, The Sound of 007, which could have been a very cool documentary about... history of the Bond songs and at times it is it is nice like I learned little tidbits you know I learned how there's a connection between Michael Caine and the Bond theme song but what I could have done without was the amount of focus on Billie Eilish because why on earth would I watch a James a documentary about Bond songs me as a Bond fan why would I watch that to learn more about Billie Eilish and her Bond song, which was okay? It's not the best Bond song ever, you know. I mean, I'm always here for a, I'm always here for a documentary called uh, that just talks about how amazing Hans Zimmer is. You know, fair play to Hans Zimmer, he is incredible. But I really could have done without the amount of Billie Eilish focus. So that just really annoyed me, you know. I came for a Bond and I got something that felt way more like a corporate product than I wanted, you know, which is disappointing because um, 10 years ago for the 50th anniversary, they released a documentary called Everything or Nothing, which, again, still was a bit kind of corporately approved feeling, but it still felt more like a documentary, a proper documentary about the history of the Bond series than this where, you know, they don't even have the balls to call out Madonna's Bond song for being shit when it is the shittest song, not just in this series, but just one of the worst songs I've ever heard in my life, you know? Um So it was a real disappointment. Um I watched Hocus Pocus 2, and as someone who doesn't have any nostalgia whatsoever for the original... I don't remember watching it as a kid um I didn't watch it really as a teenager i I think I watched it for the first time only a couple of years ago um this This wasn't gonna this didn't have much of anything for me to really latch on to. It's nice seeing um bet Midler do pretty much anything these days. you know she's fantastic she always has been she always will be. You know it's always great to see her on screen. I enjoyed seeing her on screen, and you know and there was one or two side characters that I liked. I always like seeing Sam Richardson in films. I just like the vibe he brings, um, and that's pretty much where me having much of anything to say about the movie ends. Like it's like it's a tra- Like it's a classic case of them just going through the motions of what a legacy sequel should be it's got the checklist of nostalgia ticks ready to go ticking them off one by one by one and if that's what you want then that's what you get with hocus pocus 2 it's made for people who have nostalgia for the original hocus pocus and probably their children um so as someone who neither has nostalgia for it or children um there just wasn't much for me to get out of it other people will get more of it than me i know that but for me it it was it was it was nothing it was a nothing really um speaking of a nothing uh i used to be famous which is the kind of which is a by the books to the point of where even the book is calling you lazy for doing it uh by the books, washed up pop star finds purpose film. Um, honestly, that was so bland and boring and forgettable that if I hadn't written down that I had seen it as soon as I finished it, I would have forgotten that I watched it entirely. To be honest, again, like Hocus Pocus two, it's it's a nothing. It's a nothing. It's on Netflix because Netflix needs to put things on there for people to do put in subscriptions. Like it just exists to clog up your Netflix, no, no, what a reason really, you know. Don't watch it. Watch, watch something that's interesting. Watch something that isn't bland and boring. During this month, I watched two rom coms that I can thoroughly describe as made to be watched on a plane. One is the Love Punch, which is a barely average in-flight movie starring Pierce Brosnan and Emma Thompson in a rom-com ex-husband and wife go on a caper to save their retirement fund from a rich bastard um and it's one of those movies where you can clearly tell the people involved signed up first and foremost for the holiday that it would be to go and film it it's filmed in the south in France you know, Paris, and then the south of France around Monaco. And it's very obvious that that's why they signed on, because otherwise someone like Emma Thompson would read this script and be like, no, thank you, but they felt like having a holiday. And fair fucks to them, you know? If I, if you asked me, do you want to do this movie that's not great, but you get to go to France for about two weeks, yeah, absolutely, I'd be on the first flight. Um... But yeah, it's not great. Like, it's it's a very stupid comedy. But like, not even kind of funny stupid. Just stupid stupid. Like, oh look at these old people doing this thing. That's like 80% of the humour. Um. On the flip side, I watched Ticket to Paradise. Which is the good kind of in-flight movie, light romantic comedy that... You won't really remember once you've gotten off the plane, but it was an it's a nice thing to pass the time with. You know, you've got two veterans in the hot in the driver's seat with George Clooney and Julie Roberts. They know what they're doing in this kind of movie. They've been through this before. We've seen it all before. It's going through the motions. But in a nice way, it feels like if you're flicking through the channel and you see a rerun of a show of a an old sitcom that you love. You know, if you're flicking through TV Gold and you see like a classic episodes of Only Fools and Horses, where you're like, I know how this is gonna end. I've seen all of this before, but it's fun and it's easy to watch, and I like it. You know, that's the feeling you get when you watch Ticket to Paradise it's nothing special at all it is again it's the mo- it's the m- all of the motions of a romantic comedy but in this day and age where the romantic comedy is not as prevalent as it used to be or as dominant as it used to be sometimes there is just a joy in turning on a movie and knowing what's gonna happen even though you haven't seen the movie before, but you know how it's gonna go. And sometimes that's a nice feeling. And this time it was a nice feeling. Um. And then. Rogue I watched Rogue Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Uh, just before I went away on my holidays. Um, and I still think this is one of the very best Mission Impossible movies. I think this is si- from you know obviously mission impossible 2 is the worst one and then 1 and 3 are kind of on the same level for me and then 4 5 and 6 have just been knocking it out of the park and getting consistently better um i think it's the second best mission impossible movie is rogue nation um i mean it's awesome it has some fantastic sequences the the the, the opera house sequence um Tom Cruise in the Underwater sequence, obviously Tom Cruise holding onto the side of a plane as it's taking off is and will always be iconic. Um and of course it's the first film for Rebecca Ferguson in this series and she's fantastic in it. Um but I still think Fallout is better because Rogue Nation is just missing that one extra amazing action sequence to kind of get it on the level of fallout where you know with fallout i can you know pretty much every almost every action sequence is just absolute perfection whether it's the halo jump or the fight in the bathroom or the, the end fight or the motorcycle chase through paris just everything in that movie hits perfect beat for beat and this, you know, it kind of peaks at a certain time. And then none of the action sequences after it are as good. And, you know, it's got a cool villain. But, like, the second best villain. I still think Henry Cavill is a better villain than um, the villain in Rogue Nation. And the finale in Rogue Nation is a little... It, it's a teensy bit on the wet fart side. Like, it, it's not as... It doesn't feel as epic as Fallout does. But again, I still love it um, and it's still a great movie. Um, And then to finish off the month, I watched Terrifier 2 while I was away in the States. And my god, my absolute blood and guts god, this might be the goriest movie I've ever seen in my entire life and I kind of love it, yes, it is nonsense, it is an attempt, it is an, an overlong, weird, not successful attempt to build this crazy world of backstory and lore about a killer clown, who not only murders people, not only tears them apart, but like, destroys the bodies just piece by piece like a child playing with their food it is like not all of it works like not like they 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 go for things and then they just randomly drop them out of nowhere um in ways that are almost frustrating but it's impossible for me not to like this movie because i'm just so happy that in today's world where horror is becoming more of a critically renowned genre like how it was in the 70s when you had like prestige horror films like The Exorcist and The Wicker Man and so on and so forth this feels like a return to a time when horror would be more reviled you know this feels like a horror movie that if it had come out Back in the 1980s, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert would have torn it apart for being violent, for being gross, for being disgusting and you know, wrong on a moral level. And I love the fact that we actually get something like that in 2022, you know? Like, I just, it's a big, I, I really like it. And it's a movie that relies so much on practical effects, which is awesome you know I love like Damien Leone the director was also head of the special effects department and it shows because you can tell the special effects team had the time of their life on this movie making the practical effects and they go full hog and it's awesome it's intense it's creepy Art the Clown is going to be a grindhouse horror icon in the future I bet my bottom dollar on it and it is a it was a fantastic way to end the spooky month of the year. Um thank you all very much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed this uh diary of what I watched in October. I'll be back with the November diary soon enough. Um and hopefully that's not as delayed as this one. Um thank you all very much for watching once again. Hopefully myself and Dean will be able to record the next episode of the Scooby Doo podcast soon um hopefully even maybe by the end of the end of October we'll, we'll uh, not October November but that de- we'll definitely have an episode out before Christmas I really really do hope so um so thank you all very much again for listening and goodbye